Hello there! My name is Fernanda Moura. I'm a literary scholar, founder of Books and Culture, and this is episode 27 of the podcast, An Overview of English Literature. This episode is a continuation of the guided reading of Jane Austen's first published novel, Sense and Sensibility. But before we start, I'd like to remind you about a brand new course at Books and Culture called the Jane Austen Club. It is a four-module asynchronous online course, so you can follow it at your own pace. In the 14 lessons, you will learn more about Jane's private life, her relationship with her family, the Regency era, her early works, published novels, unfinished works, women writers in the 19th century, the reception of her work, the Jane Austen cult, and much, much more. You can register for the course via the website booksandculture.club and start your Austinian journey right away. You can also follow me on Instagram at books.and.culture, so you will be notified of upcoming online literature courses. So now let's talk about today's episode. This is the eighth session of the guided reading of Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility. I host these sessions live at the Books and Culture YouTube channel. Every Thursday at 1 p.m. Central European Time, I go live to read and discuss four chapters of the novel, offering contextual information and extra knowledge to make your reading experience even more meaningful. And based on a subscriber's suggestion, I've also brought this project to the podcast An Overview of English Literature, so that if you cannot join the live sessions on YouTube, you can listen to the audio version of the discussion here. I hope you like it. So it's time for our Jane Austen O'Clock at Books and Culture. Grab your own copy of Austen's Sense and Sensibility, a cup of tea or coffee, and read along with me. You can pause and continue at any time. And if you'd like to join one of the live video sessions, you can do so via the Books and Culture YouTube channel. Bear in mind that these sessions were not originally thought of as audio-only documents. So I apologize in advance if something is not clear or for long pauses. I hope you enjoy this format. I'd love to receive your feedback via email at hello at booksandculture.club. So let's get started with the eighth session of the guided reading of Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility. Enjoy. Hello, book lovers. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new session of the guided reading of Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility. I hope you're well. I hope you've enjoyed reading the chapters for today. I hope you have your tea or coffee ready because it is Jane Austen o'clock and books and culture. It is time for us to talk about our beloved writer. And before we begin, I have great news. The theme course, the Jane Austen Club, will be available from Monday onwards, Monday the 27th of March. And you will learn a lot about Jane Austen's private life, her relationship with her family, uh, the time period in which she lived and published her book, so the Regency era. Uh, we talk about her early writing, so her juvenilia, and the early text that she wrote before she even became um, a renowned author. We talked about her published novels, um, so Sense and Sensibility, Pride and Prejudice, Mansfield Park, Emma, Northanger Abbey, and Persuasion. We talk about 
the situation of a female professional writer, so professional woman writer in the uh, at the turn of the 19th century. We talk about her letters, her unfinished works, uh, such as the Watsons and Saniton. We talk about the critical response to her, the critical reception of her works. And we also talk about the cults of Jane Austen. So how she has become this cultural icon in still um, such a big symbol in our era in the 21st century. It's a very nice course. If you love Jane Austen, you will love it. So you will be able to access the course from Monday, the 27th of March onwards. It is an asynchronous course, which means that all the lessons are pre-recorded. There are four modules and uh, 14 lessons, so you can watch them at your own pace. Every lesson also brings um, a list of further reading and links to other uh, websites or articles. And at the end of each module, you also have access to a quiz to check your knowledge about Jane Austen. And now let's move on to our discussion of the day. Today, we are going to talk about chapters 26 to 29. Um, if you've missed the previous sessions, you can always watch the recording, or if you cannot stay here for the whole session, you can also watch the recordings at this channel, Books and Culture YouTube channel. Don't forget to subscribe to the channel so you also receive notifications when there's new material and you um, and you help uh, books and culture to grow. What is also relatively new is that now you can also listen to the guided reading of Jane Austen's, I mean, <laughs> Sense and Sensibility um, at the in the podcast, an overview of English literature. So if you want to have access to an audio-only uh, document, you can do that via the podcast. And I also have a book recommendation for today. Um, so for book lovers, Jane Austen lovers that like to dig deeper into her work and to read literature in context, which is very important, I recommend this book, Jane Austen in Context, edited by Janet Todd. Um, each chapter is written by a different writer, so a specialist in a specific area uh, in the Austen canon. Just for you to have an idea, so there are chapters on, for instance, biography, language, literary influences, critical responses, translations, but also what I find amazing are uh, chapters on historical and cultural context. I use this a lot as a resource for the course Jane Austen Club. So for instance, chapters on book production, domestic architecture, education and accomplishments, manners, medicine, illness and disease. So everything that was going on uh, during Jane Austen's time for us to understand her world better. And then we can place her literary uh, productions within that world. Um, so let me know who's watching this live. Welcome to this session. I hope you enjoy today's discussion. I'm very excited. We are reaching a very interesting point in the narrative. Last time we finished volume one 
and started volume two. And today we are continuing with module um, with um, volume two. Just a recap. This is what we talked about last time. So we read about the conversation between Lucy Steele and Eleanor Dashwood. So remember the sisters, um, Miss Steele's, the superfluous young ladies that were visiting um, Lady and Sir John Middleton at Barton Park. Marianne and Eleanor did not get along with them because uh, there was a gap uh, in um, uh, a formal education, so they couldn't really follow the same type of substantial conversation that Eleanor and um, Eleanor and Marianne uh, prefer. So it's a very superficial, superficial um, relationship that they develop with these two girls out of um, social obligation, right? Um, but there was a very interesting conversation between Lucy and Eleanor last time. Eleanor finds out about Lucy and Edward Ferrer's four-year engagement. So that's a very hard moment for Eleanor. She learns that her beloved Edward Ferrer's has been engaged to the silly Lucy Steele for the past four years. It's a shock. But as the embodiment of sense, she controls her feelings. And at first, she uh, doubts the veracity of these facts. But eventually, there are too many proofs. So the fact that Edward spent two weeks with unnamed friends near Plymouth, that's where the Steels lived, Lucy's miniature of Edward's painting that she uh, carries with her all the time. The letter that they exchanged, remember we talked about it at the time, you were only allowed to exchange letters uh, with um, a person of the opposite sex and single if there was an official engagement. Otherwise, it would be considered extremely inappropriate for a single man and a single woman to uh, communicate via letters. Um, and Lucy's hair in uh, Edward's ring. So those were proof enough for Eleanor to accept that Edward was uh, indeed engaged. And only when she is alone can Eleanor give herself the liberty to think and be wretched. And that is the end of volume one. So we end volume one with this very melancholy scene with Eleanor suffering because she's found out about Edward's prior, prior engagement to Lucy Steele. And then we read the first three, the first three chapters of uh, volume two. Um, the first chapter of volume two is mostly through Eleanor's perspective and Eleanor has time, now that she's alone, she has time to think and rationalize the circumstances. She has to do that. It's very, um, um, that's part of her characteristics and her understanding of the world. She needs time alone to reflect. And she wants to gather more information from Lucy. And that's why she decides to help her with the filigree basket so that they can have a private conversation. And in this conversation, uh, Eleanor finds out that Lucy wants Eleanor's help to get Edward to take orders to become a priest 
and the living at Norland. So then they would have enough money or enough of an income to marry because this union, Edward Ferrers and Miss Lucy Steele, would never be accepted by Edward's mother, who wants, who has a lot of ambition for her son. And if Eleanor Dashwood is not enough for him, let alone Miss Lucy Steele, who was in an even inferior social position. So they would have to find a way to live by themselves. That's why they have been postponing the engagement for four years. And based on the conversation, Eleanor is certain that they're Theirs, Lucy and Edwards, is not an engagement of the heart, but one of self-interest for Lucy. It is, of course, a very good prospect, social prospect for Lucy to marry Edward Ferris. And Edward, once he gives his word, Eleanor knows that he would never um, uh, turn back. He would never uh, betray his honor. Um, so he's attached to Lucy for life, right? Um, and then Mrs. Jennings invites Eleanor and Marianne to go to London with her. And Marianne, despite not liking Mrs. Jennings at all, agrees to go. And she's excited to go because she plans to see Willoughby there. She knows that Willoughby is in London, so she does not want to, wa to waste the opportunity of seeing him in person, of talking to him in person. So she even accepts to <laughs> face the company of Mrs. Jennings for a while to be able to do that. And Eleanor is really sad and melancholy and hurt, but when she sees her sister so happy, eventually she agrees to go. And the Dashwoods go to London. That's where we left them in our last session. So today is day eight. Yes, uh, Michelle says that um, it's our two month anniversary. Indeed, today is our session eight. So. It's our two-month anniversary of reading Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility. I hope you've been enjoying it and learning a lot from it and digging deeper into Austen's literary text. So we're going to start with chapter four of volume two or chapter 26, if you have an edition that um, counts the chapters all in one go. And the Dashwoods are going to London. So let's see what happens. And this chapter is mainly through Eleanor's perspective still. <clears throat> Eleanor could not find herself in the carriage with Mrs. Jennings and beginning a journey to London under her protection and as her guest without wondering at her own situation. So short had their acquaintance with that lady been so wholly unsuited were they in age and disposition, and so many had been her objections against such a measure only a few days before. But these objections had all, with that happy ardor of youth which Marianne and her mother equally shared, been overcome or overlooked. And Eleanor, in spite of every occasional doubt of Willoughby's constancy, could not witness the rapture of delightful expectation which filled the whole soul and beamed in the eyes of Marianne without feeling how blank her own prospect, how cheerless her own state of mind in the comparison, and how gladly she would engage in the solicitude of Marianne's situation to have the same animating object in view, the same possibility of hope. 
A short, a very short time, however, must now decide what Willoughby's intentions were. In all probability, he was already in town. Marianne's eagerness to be gone declared her dependence on finding him there. And Eleanor was resolved not only upon gaining every new light as to his character, which her own observation or the intelligence of others could give her, but likewise upon watching his behavior to her sister with such zealous attention as to ascertain what he was and what he meant before many meetings had taken place. Should the result of her observations be unfavorable, she was determined at all events to open the eyes of her sister. Should it be otherwise, her exertions would be of a different nature. She must then learn to avoid every selfish comparison and banish every regret which might lessen her satisfaction in the happiness of Marianne. So there is a um, change of balance here, right? So um, remember how Eleanor was sad when they left uh, Norland. Then Marianne became, became happy when she met um, Willoughby. Then Willoughby left, so Marianne was really sad. And then Edward Ferris came for a visit, so Eleanor's spirits were up again. But then she finds out about his engagement to Lucy Steele, so she's sad again. And now they're going to London, and uh, Marianne expects to see Willoughby, so she is happy again. Um, and Eleanor cannot but compare their situation, so she wishes she could have the hope that she sees in her sister. But even so, even though she's wretched and uh, feeling extremely sad, she finds comfort in seeing the happiness back in her uh, sister's eyes and countenance and behavior. And as the older sister, she has a very specific object in this trip to London. She's going to observe Willoughby very cautiously and observe Marianne's behavior to really find out what's going on and to finally make a decision, right? So they were three days on their journey and Marianne's behavior as they traveled was a specimen of what her future complaisance and companionableness to Mrs. Jennings might be expected to be. She sat in silence almost all the way, wrapped in her own meditations and scarcely ever voluntarily speaking, except when any object of picturesque beauty within their view drew from her an exclamation of delight exclusively addressed to her sister. Marianne cannot hide what she's feeling or pretend she feels otherwise. So in the, in the carriage, for three days traveling, she already shows, as the sarcastic narrator puts it, a happy specimen of what her companion bonus would be to Mrs. Jennings during their stay, which was complete silence, wrapped in her own meditations and only talking directly to Eleanor. Now, I think this is an interesting to know the fact that they took three days to arrive in London. Um, so according to the footnote, seven to eight hours each day in the coach at an average speed of around eight miles an hour would take three days to cover the distance from Barton near Exeter to London. So perceptions of time and experiences of time um, of traveling were very different. So it would take them three days to arrive in London and traveling for 
as long as uh, seven or eight hours each day. So very tiring um, journey, right? Um, so Marianne is not being very polite, so Eleanor has to make up for that. To atone for this conduct, therefore, Eleanor took immediate possession of the post of civility which she had assigned herself, behaved with the greatest attention to Mrs. Jennings, talked with her, laughed with her, and listened to her whenever she could. And Mrs. Jennings, on her side, treated them both with all possible kindness, was solicitous on every occasion for their ease and enjoyment, and only disturbed that she could not make them choose their own dinners at the inn, nor extort a confession of their preferring salmon to cod or boiled fowls to veal cutlets. They reached town by three o'clock the third day, glad to be released after such a journey from the confinement of a carriage and ready to enjoy all the luxury of a good fire. Remember, it's January, if I'm not mistaken, so it's pretty cold to travel at this uh, time of the year. And um, there's an interesting social context information here. Um, so Marianne and Eleanor do not choose what they want to eat at the inn as um, social tact, as politeness, since Mrs. Jennings was paying dinner for them and uh, some meals would be more expensive than the other, they don't choose. So they let Mrs. Jennings choose for them because they are being polite as guests. They should never choose. So they arrive at Mrs. Jennings' house in London. The house was handsome and handsomely fitted up, and the young ladies were immediately put in possession of a very comfortable apartment. It had formerly been Charlotte's, and over the mantelpiece still hung a landscape in colored silks of her performance, in proof of her having spent seven years at a great school in town to some effect. Showing off her daughter's accomplishments, right? So after spending seven years uh, at a school, she had at least that to show, uh, a landscape in colored silks. <laughs> As dinner was not to be ready in less than two hours from their arrival, Eleanor determined to employ the interval in writing to her mother and sat down for that purpose. In a few moments, Marianne did the same. I am writing home, Marianne, said Eleanor. Had not you better defer your letter for a day or two? I am not going to write to my mother, replied Marianne hastily, and as if wishing to avoid any farther inquiry. Elnor said no more. It immediately struck her that she must then be writing to Willoughby, and the conclusion which as instantly followed was that, however mysteriously they might wish to conduct the affair, they must be engaged, as they were corresponding, right? This conviction, though not entirely satisfactory, gave her pleasure, and she continued her letter with greater alacrity. Marianne's was finished in a very few minutes, in length, it could be no more than a note. It was then folded up, sealed, and directed with eager rapidity. Eleanor thought she could distinguish a large W in the direction, and no sooner was it complete than Marianne, ringing the bell, requested the footman who answered it to get that letter conveyed for her to the two-penny post. This decided the matter at once. So she wanted to be quick about it, right? She wanted to send a message to Willoughby right away. So she used the two penny post. 
This is also interesting for us to know a bit more uh, contextual information. So the postal fee for local delivery of mail in London increased from one penny in 1801, a source of information for Eleanor that her sister is sending a letter within London. So not to her mom or anyone in uh, Norland or Barton, but within London. And that could only be Willoughby. Since the two penny post was picked up and delivered six times a day at 8 a.m., 10 a.m., noon, 2 p.m., 4 p.m., and 7 p.m., Marianne's frequent inquiries about the mail seem reasonable. The date of the increase to two penny postage provides a marker for revisions of sense and sensibility, sensibility done after Jane Austen's 1797 version. We talked about this previously. So there are certain hints uh, of the revision that Jane Austen made um, of the manuscript of Marianne and Eleanor and then changed to Sense and Sensibility because in 1797 the post would be one penny and uh, one pound, right? One pound. Uh, no, one penny, sorry, one penny. That would be very expensive. One pound. Um, so it would be one penny and now in 1811, so when uh, uh, sensibility was published, the, the cost had raised to two penny post. And she uses this because it's the quickest way to send a message and the quickest way to receive an answer. Um, and that's why she's uh, restless the whole day, because there are many opportunities in which a response could have been delivered to her. Let's continue. Um, her spirits still continued very high, but there was a flutter in them which prevented their giving much pleasure to her sister. And this agitation increased as the evening drew on. She could scarcely eat any dinner, and when they afterwards returned to the drawing room, seemed anxiously listening to the sound of every carriage. Is that him? Is it coming? Has he replied? So I... Typical teenager, but in uh, early 19th century England. It was a great satisfaction to Eleanor that Mrs. Jennings, by being much engaged in her own room, could see little of what was passing. The tea things were brought in, and already had Marianne been disappointed more than once by a rap at a neighboring door, when a loud one was suddenly heard which could not be mistaken for one at any other house. Eleanor felt secure of its announcing Willoughby's approach, and Marianne, starting up, moved towards the door. Everything was silent. This could not be borne many seconds. She opened the door, advanced a few steps towards the stairs, and after listening half a minute, returned into the room in all the agitation which a conviction of having heard him would naturally produce. In the ecstasy of her feelings at that instant, she could not help explaining exclaiming, oh, Eleanor, it is Willoughby, indeed it is, and seemed almost ready to throw herself into his arms when Colonel Brandon arrived, appeared. So not Willoughby yet, but Colonel Brandon. What a disappointment for Eleanor, for Marianne. It was too great a shock to be borne with calmness, and she immediately left the room. Eleanor was disappointed too. 
same time, her regard for Colonel Brandon ensured her wel his welcome with her. And she felt particularly hurt that a man so partial to her sister should receive that she experienced nothing but grief and disappointment in seeing him. She instantly saw that it was not unnoticed by him that he even observed Marianne as she quitted the room with such astonishment and concern as hardly left him the recollection of what civility demanded towards herself. Is your sister ill? said he. Eleanor answered in some distress that she was, and then talked of headaches, low spirits, and over-fatigues, and of everything to which she could decently attribute her sister's behavior. He heard her with the most earnest attention, but seeming to recollect himself, said no more on the subject, and began directly to speak of his pleasure at seeing them in London, making the usual inquiries about their journey and their friends they had left behind. The social protocol, right? In this calm kind of way, with very little interest on either side. So they were just completing, uh, fulfilling this social protocol. So you had to talk to one another for a little bit. So they inquire about their journey, the friends, uh, common acquaintances, but with little interest on either side. A facade conversation. They continued to talk, both of them out of spirits, and the thoughts of both engaged elsewhere. Eleanor wished very much to ask whether Willoughby were then in town, but she was afraid of giving him pain by any inquiry after his rival. And at length, by way of saying something, she asked if he had been in London ever since she had seen him last. Yes, he replied with some embarrassment, almost ever since. I have been once or twice at Delaford for a few days, but it has never been in my power to return to Barton. This, and the manner in which it was said, immediately brought back to her remembrance all the circumstances of his quitting that place, with the uneasiness and suspicions they had caused to Mrs. Jennings, and she was fearful that her question had implied much more curiosity on the subject than she had ever felt. Curiosity was an impertinent, inappropriate feeling. And um, remember what happened to Colonel Brandon to make him leave so suddenly uh, Barton. He received a message and he had to leave to London immediately. No one knew why, but Mrs. Jennings um, thought that it could have something to do with Miss Williams, the supposed um, daughter, legitimate daughter of Colonel Brandon. So that's not something that should be talked about in public. And Eleanor was now afraid that her question might have um, shown an appropriate degree of curiosity that she, in fact, uh, did not even feel. Mrs. Jennings soon came in. Oh, Colonel, said she with her usual noisy cheerfulness. I am monstrous glad to see you. Sorry I could not come before. Beg your pardon, but I have been forced to look about me a little and settle my matters. For it is a long while since I have been at home, and you know one has always a world of little odd things to do after one has been away for any time. And then I have had Cartwright to settle with. Lord, I have been as busy as a bee ever since dinner. But pray, Colonel, how came you to conjure out that I should be in town today? I had the pleasure of hearing it at Mr. Palmer's, where I have been dining. 
Oh, you did? Well, and how do they all do at their house? How does Charlotte do? I warrant you she's a fine size by this time. Mrs. Palmer appeared quite well, and I am commissioned to tell you that you will certainly see her tomorrow. Uh, the Palmers, Mrs. Palmer is um, one of Mrs. Jennings' daughters, Charlotte, and she is pregnant. That's why she asks, she says that she's a fine size by this time. So her pregnancy has um, developed during the time <clears throat> that Mrs. Jennings um, did not see her daughter. I, to be sure, I thought as much. Well, Colonel, I have brought two young ladies with me, you see. That is, you see but one of them now, but there is another one somewhere. Your friend, Miss Marianne, too, which you will not be sorry to hear. I do not know what you and Mr. Willoughby will do between you about her. I, it is a fine thing to be young and handsome. Well, I was young once, but I never was very handsome, worse luck for me. However, I got a very good husband, and I don't know what the greatest beauty can do more. Poor man, he has been dead these eight years and better. But, Colonel, where have you been to since we parted? And how does your business go on? Come, come, let's have no secrets among friends. He replied with his accustomary mildness to all her inquiries, but without satisfying her in any. Elnor now began to make the tea, and Marianne was obliged to appear again. After her entrance, Colonel Brandon became more thoughtful and silent than he had been before, and Mrs. Jennings could not prevail on him to stay long. No other visitor appeared that evening, and the ladies were unanimous in agreeing to go early to bed. Marianne rose the next morning with recovered spirits and happy looks. The disappointment of the evening before seemed forgotten in the expectation of what was to happen that day. They had not long finished their breakfast before Mrs. Palmer's barouche, the fashionable type of carriage, stopped at the door and in a few minutes she came laughing into the room, so delighted to see them all that it was hard to say whether she received most pleasure from meeting her mother or the Miss Dashwoods again. So surprised at their coming to town, though it was what she had expected, rather expected all along. So angry at their accepting her mother's invitation after having declined her own, um, after having declined her own, though at the same time she would never have forgiven them if they had not come. Mr. Palmer will be so happy to see you, said she. What do you think he said when he heard of your coming with mama? I forget what it was now, but it was something so droll. <laughs> Remember, we talked about her relationship with Mr. Palmer. Terrible relationship. So Mr. Palmer is always evasive, always um, in the corner, reserved as a way, very aloof as a way to escape his own marriage. And by contrast, Mrs. Palmer is always extremely cheerful, but an artificial cheerful. Remember, we read how she was determined to be happy rather than actually being happy, which was quite sad. So she keeps referring to her husband and what he would say and how funny that was, when in fact, the reality was that he didn't say anything and it was not funny at all. So it's a way for her to cope with her situation, right? After an hour or two spent in what her mother called comfortable chat, 
or in other words, in every variety of inquiry concerning all their acquaintance on Mrs. Jennings' side and in laughter without cause on Mrs. Palmer's. Narrator here is, <laughs> this is the narrator's comment, right? And in laughter without cause on Mrs. Jennings, well, Mrs. Palmer's. It was proposed by the letter that they should all accompany her to some shops where she had business that morning, to which Mrs. Jennings and Eleanor readily consented as having likewise some purchases to make themselves. And Marianne, though declining it at first, was induced to go likewise. Wherever they went, she was evidently always on the watch. In Bond Street, especially, where much of their business lay, her eyes were in constant inquiry, and in whatever shop the party were engaged, her mind was equally abstracted from everything actually before them, from all that interested and occupied the others. Bond Street is the shop, was a shopping street, fashionable shopping street, and that's also where Urobi took lodgings. She was on the lookout if she could spot him. So she didn't even look at what was happening uh, in her own environment. Restless and dissatisfied everywhere, her sister could never obtain her opinion of any article of purchase. However, it might equally concern them both. She received no pleasure from anything was only impatient to be at home again and could with difficulty govern her vexation at the tediousness of Mrs. Palmer, whose eye was caught by everything pretty, expensive or new, who was wild to buy all, could determine on none and dawdled away her time in rapture and indecision. And Marianne had no patience for that. So she had her own, she was uh, focused in her own mental state uh, she preferred to be alone and always on the lookout and couldn't enjoy anything happening around her. It was late in the morning before they returned home, and no sooner had they entered the house than Marianne flew eagerly upstairs, and when Eleanor followed, she found her turning from the table with a sorrowful countenance, which declared that no Willoughby had been there. "'Has no letter been left here for me since we went out?' said she to the footman, who then entered with the parcels. She was answered in the negative. Are you quite sure of it? She replied. Are you certain that no servant, no porter has left any letter or note? The man replied that none had. How very odd, said she in a low and disappointed voice as she turned away to the window. How odd indeed, repeated Eleanor within herself regarding her sister with uneasiness. If she had not known him to be in town, she would not have written to him, as she did. She would have written to Combe Magna, and if he is in town, how odd that he should neither come nor write. Oh, my dear mother, you must be wrong in permitting an engagement between a daughter so young, a man so little known, to be carried on in so doubtful, so mysterious a manner. I long to inquire, but how will my interference be borne? Remember that people could not speak plainly or um, objectively, even within their family. So they are sisters, and she felt, and Eleanor felt like she could not ask Marianne about the engagement face to face and straightforward because it will be considered an inappropriate interference. It's Marianne's private business. So she suffers with this mystery and with the uneasiness of the situation. 
She determined after some consideration that if appearances continued many days longer, as unpleasant as they now were, she would represent in the strongest manner to her mother the necessity of some serious inquiry into the affair. Even the mother would not meddle, right? Mrs. Palmer and two elderly ladies of Mrs. Jennings' intimate acquaintance, whom she had met and invited in the morning, dined with them. The former left them soon after tea to fulfill her evening engagements, and Eleanor was obliged to assist in making a whist table for the others. Whist was a card, a card game. Marian was of no use on these occasions, as she would never learn the game, but though her time was therefore at her own disposal, the evening was by no means more productive of pleasure to her than to Eleanor, for it was spent in all the anxiety of expectation and the pain of disappointment. She sometimes endeavored for a few minutes to read, but the book was soon thrown aside and she returned to the more interesting employment of walking backwards and forwards across the room, pausing for a moment whenever she came to the window in hopes of distinguishing the long-expected rap. Oh, just reading about it makes you anxious, right? So she was so full of hope, and every day her hopes are crushed. No Willoughby, no call. Call, I mean visit, right? No, no letter. And because of the way she is, Marianne, cannot force herself to feel something she's not feeling and she cannot control her emotions. She cannot appreciate anything else. She can only focus on her grief, on her anxiety, walking backwards and forwards. She cannot, she cannot even read, which is something that she loves doing. So you can imagine how restless her mind was. Um, and let's see. And this is the end of chapter four in volume two or chapter 26. So let's continue with the next chapter to see what is going on with Willoughby. Where is he and why hasn't he answered Marian's call? And this chapter already starts with a conversation, in the middle of a conversation. So it's something we called in media res. So we begin the chapter um, as if, as a reader, we fall from a parachute in the middle of a situation already happening. And this is a conversation that's already going on. If this open weather holds much longer, said Mrs. Jennings when they met at breakfast the following morning, Sir John will not like, will not like leaving Barton next week. It is a sad thing for sportsmen to lose a day's pleasure. Poor souls. I always pity them when they do. They seem to take it so much to heart. Sir John Middleton was a sportsman. He hunted. So it's January. But if the weather is still holding up, it's still open and bright, it's still good weather for hunting. So Mrs. Jennings predicts that Sir John would stay a bit longer in Barton to enjoy this fine weather. And then Marianne has an idea. Ah, oh, that is true, cried Marianne in a cheerful voice and walking to the window as she spoke to examine the day. I had not thought of that. This weather will keep many sportsmen in the country. And now she's not thinking of Sir John Middleton. She's thinking of Willoughby, who was also a huntsman, um, 
So she thought, well, maybe he's not in London after all. Maybe the good weather brought him to the countryside for hunting. It was a lucky recollection. All her good spirits were restored by it. It is charming weather for them indeed, she continued as she sat down to the breakfast table with a happy countenance. She changes very quickly. How much they must enjoy it. But with a little return of anxiety, it cannot be expected to last long. At this time of year and after such a series of rain, we shall certainly have very little more of it. Costs will soon set in and in all probability with severity. In another day or two, perhaps. This extreme mildness can hardly last longer. Nay, perhaps it may freeze tonight. At any rate, said Eleanor, wishing to prevent Mrs. Jennings from seeing her sister's thoughts as clearly as she did. I dare say we shall have Sir John and Lady Middleton in town by the end of next week. I, my dear, I warrant you we do. Mary always has her own way. And now, silently conjectured Eleanor, she will write to come by this day's post. So if she cannot find him in London, she, Eleanor's thinking she will probably send him a letter in his countryside um, lodgings. If she did, now that's Eleanor thinking, the letter was written and sent away with a privacy which eluded all her watchfulness to a certain fact. Whatever the truth of it might be, and far as Eleanor was from feeling through contentment about it, yet while she saw Marianne in spirits, she could not be very uncomfortable herself. And Marianne was in spirits, happy in the mildness of the weather and still happier in her expectation of a frost. Marianne, who would love to spend time outside, would not like the frost, but if the frost means that Willoughby is coming back to town, then she's happy about it. Mm. The morning was chiefly spent in leaving cards at the houses of Mrs. Jennings' acquaintance to inform them of her being in town. And Marianne was all the time busy in observing the direction of the wind, watching the variations of the sky, and imagining an alteration in the air. She was in London for the first time, if I'm not mistaken. She's not even looking uh, around. Now, I would like to point out this information, another social context information, which is very interesting for us readers that live in a different time period. So they were, they spent the morning leaving cards at the houses of people. Now, what does it mean? Um, according to the footnote, presenting a visiting card to a footman to be left with the mistress of the house, necessary as a courtesy as well as a way for Mrs. Jennings to renew her social circle of friends and acquaintances in town. So you, we've talked about it. They would move quite around. So there was a specific time of the year in which they would stay in the countryside, specific time of the year in which they would spend in the town, uh, in the city, in London, specific time of year that it would go to a resort city such as Bath, um, and whenever you arrived, so if you're part of this elite social circle, anytime you arrived at a new place, you would have to make your presence known to your acquaintances. So how would you do that? You would visit all the addresses of the people that you know, and you would leave a card, which was a social card with your name and your address. And you would leave that card with the footman, footman, so the servant of that house. So then 
the the owners of the house, the hosts of there, would receive the card and know that Mrs. Jennings was in town. So then whenever there was a new social activity, such as a dinner, a party, a ball, she would be invited. And it was not only uh, nice to do, it was expected to do. So a social task, you had to do that. Um, so let's continue. Don't you find it colder than it was in the morning, Eleanor? So that's all Marianne can think about. There seems to me a very decided difference. I can hardly keep my hands warm, even in my muff. It was not so yesterday, I think. The clouds seem parting too. The sun will be out in a moment and we shall have a clear afternoon. Eleanor was alternately diverted and pained, but Marianne persevered and saw every night in the brightness of the fire and every morning in the appearance of the atmosphere the certain symptoms of approaching frost. The Miss Dashwoods had no greater reason to be dissatisfied with Mrs. Jennings' style of living and set of acquaintance than with her behavior to themselves, which was invariably kind. Everything in her household arrangements was conducted on the most liberal plan, and excepting a few old city friends, whom, to Lady Middleton's regret, she had never dropped acquaintance, she, she visited no one to whom an introduction could at all discompose the feelings of her young companions. Pleased to find herself more comfortably situated in that particular than she had expected, Eleanor was very willing to compound for the want of much real enjoyment from any of their evening parties, which, whether at home or abroad, formed only of for cards, could have little to amuse her. So it didn't really matter if she was in London or in Barton. People would do the same, just get together to play cards, and she couldn't care less. But remember that one of the reasons why Eleanor was a bit apprehensive about going to London with Mrs. Jennings is the she was worried about the type of company that Mrs. Jennings would entertain and the kind of introductions that um, the Dashwood sisters would be forced to make. Um, but she was wrong. Everyone, all, all of the acquaintances were very well socially situated, except for a few friends in town uh, whose acquaintance um, Mrs. Jennings never dropped. To the regret, was that regret? To the regret of Lady Middleton. Now, what does that mean, some old friends from the city? And why would certain people be considered more appropriate as acquaintances than others? Let's take a look at this um, footnote. A strong social separation between the polite world and the commercial world a traditional fact of English society was in a state of rapid erosion in the early 19th century. Prosperous business families were leaving their old homes located near their offices and warehouses in the city to take houses in the fashionable West End where they could erase the marks and ties of their prior life. Mrs. Jennings, admirably, refuses to turn her back on her old friends. Colonel Fitzwilliam tells Elizabeth Bennet that Darcy's objection to a match between Jane and Bingley is his objection to her having an uncle who was in business in London. So there was a strong social separation between the people that were born gentry, born in a wealthy family, so had titles, had tradition, had a family name, such as the Dashwoods, the Middletons, the Ferrers, uh, 
the Darcy's in Pride and Prejudice and so on. Um, on the, on the one hand, and on the other hand, the people that became rich because of business, of trade. So with the industrialization at the turn of the 19th century, there were a lot of people making money, uh, people that were not born rich, or were not born in a uh, wealthy family with a, a reputable name, with uh, um, owning land, but acquired that because of the money they received with business but that was dirty money and it they should not mix as the footnote makes it clear this tension was reaching a point of erosion at the beginning of the 19th century and it eventually disappeared but there was still a clash and most traditional families would want to keep their acquaintances let's say pure in quotation marks um from the corruption of those business and um, traders' families. Even though they were rich and could afford a house in the same address, they were not a suitable um, company. Um, that reminds me of a TV series that you may be familiar with, and if you're not, I would highly recommend that you watch it. It's called Downton Abbey, and we follow the family Downton Abbey. At Downton Abbey. So Downton Abbey is the property and they are very traditional family, reputable name. Um, they are landowners. But it is at the turn of the 20th century. So things were even more drastic then. That lifestyle was completely falling apart. But they still, especially the older generation in the family, Lady Crawley and the father of uh, the girls, father of Lady Mary, still wanted to keep that kind of lifestyle, even though it did not make any more sense in a world in the early 20th century, especially after World War One, and later World War II would completely um, um, end that kind of um, social relationships, uh, yeah, social barriers. But here, 100 years later, <laughs> Uh, it was still the beginning of this tension. Uh, so you see in Pride and Prejudice, Mr. Darcy was uh, afraid, was hesitant about his friend Bingley marrying Jane uh, Bennett because Jane Bennett's uncle was a tradesman. You see how, how deep and how exaggerated that concern could be? All right. And that was what was in Eleanor's mind as well, I guess, when she was worried about what kind of people they would meet in, in the city. Okay, let's continue. Colonel Brandon, who had a general invitation to the house, was with them almost every day. He came to look at Marianne and talk to Eleanor, who often derived more satisfaction from conversing with him than from any other daily occurrence, but who saw at the same time with much concern his continued regard for her sister. She feared it was a strengthening regard. It grieved her to see the earnestness with which he often watched Marianne, and his spirits were certainly worse than when at Barton. About a week after their arrival, it became certain that Willoughby was also arrived. His card was on the table when they came in from the morning's drive. So he left his card, meaning that he wanted to acknowledge his presence in the city to the 
um, to the people in that house. Good God, cried Marianne. He has been here while we were out. Eleanor, rejoiced to be assured of his being in London, now ventured to say, depend upon it, he will call again tomorrow. But Marianne seemed hardly to hear her and on Mrs. Jennings' entrance escaped with the precious card. This event, while it raised the spirits of Eleanor, restored to those of her sister all and more than all their former agitation. From this moment, her mind was never quiet. The expectation of seeing him every hour of the day made her unfit for anything. She insisted on being left behind the next morning when the others went out. So now Marianne is, is restless again and for a now different reason because she knows he's there. So he might, he should appear at any moment through that door. Eleanor's thoughts were full of what might be passing in Berkeley Street during their absence. That's Mrs. Jennings' address. But a moment's glance at her sister when they returned was enough to inform her that Willoughby had paid no second visit there. A note was just then brought in and laid on the table. For me, cried Marianne, stepping hastily forward. No, ma'am, for my mistress. But Marianne, not convinced, took it up instantly. It is indeed for Mrs. Jennings. How provoking. You are expecting a letter then, said Eleanor, unable to be longer silent. Yes, a little, not much. After a short pause, you have no confidence in me, Marianne. Nay, Eleanor, this reproach from you, you who have no confidence in no one. Me, returned Eleanor in some confusion. Indeed, Marianne, I have nothing to tell. Nor I, answered Marianne with energy. Our situations then are alike. We have neither of us anything to tell. You because you communicate, and I because I conceal nothing. So each sister, in fact, thinks that there's more going on in the other sister's life when in fact there isn't, right? They both have nothing to tell indeed. Eleanor, distressed by this charge of reserve in herself, which she was not at liberty to do away, knew not how, under such circumstances, to press for greater openness in Marianne. Mrs. Jennings soon appeared, and the note being given her, she read it aloud. It was from Lady Middleton, announcing their arrival in Conduit Street the night before, and requesting the company of her mother and cousins the following evening. Business on Sir John's part and a violent cold on her own prevented their calling in Berkeley Street. The invitation was accepted, but when the hour of appointment drew near, necess necessary as it was in common civility to Mrs. Jennings that they should both attend her on such a visit, Eleanor had some difficulty in persuading her sister to go, for still she had seen nothing of Willoughby and therefore was not more indisposed for amusement abroad than unwilling to run the risk of his calling again in her absence. Eleanor found, when the evening was over, that disposition is not materially altered by a change of abode, for although scarcely settled in town, Sir John had contrived to collect around him nearly twenty young people and to amuse them with a ball. This was an affair, however, of which Lady Middleton did not approve. In the country, an unpremeditated dance was very allowable, but in London, where the reputation of elegance was more important and less easily obtained, it was risking too much for the gratification of a few girls, 
to have it known that Lady Middleton had given a small dance of eight or nine couple with two violins and a mere sideboard collation. So things were different in London and in the countryside. Some things were allowed in the countryside that were not allowed in the city, that were not considered fashionable enough for the city, such as offering an unpremeditated small bowl um, with only two violins and a light meal. So that would be unacceptable. But Sir John always wanted to have as many people as possible around him. Remember, we talked about him. He's also quite an empty character. He has no purpose in life. So in a way, to veil that emptiness of his existence, he's always searching for distraction. So always bringing a lot of people around him, making it as noisy as possible. So he forgets the superficiality, the emptiness of his own existence. Mr. and Mrs. Palmer were of the party. From the former, whom they had not seen before since their arrival in town, as he was careful to avoid the appearance of any attention to his mother-in-law, and therefore never came near her, they received no mark of recognition on their entrance. He looked at them slightly, without seeming to know who they were, and merely nodded to Mrs. Jennings from the other side of the room. Marianne gave one glance round the apartment as she entered. It was enough. He was not there. And she sat down, equally ill-disposed to receive or communicate pleasure. After they had been assembled about an hour, Mr. Palmer sauntered towards the Miss Dashwoods to express his surprise on seeing them in town, though Colonel Brandon had been first informed of their arrival in their house. <laughs> And he had himself said something very droll on hearing that they were to come. Remember, this is echoing uh, um, Mrs. Palmer's uh, sentence earlier. She said that she had informed Mr. Palmer that the Dashwoods were there and he had said something very droll. And now the narrator uh, reiterates that with a very sar sarcastic voice. And he had himself said something very droll on hearing that they were to come. I thought you were both in Devonshire, said he. Did you? replied Eleanor. When do you go back again? I do not know. And thus ended their discourse. <laughs> Never had Marianne been so unwilling to dance in her life as she was that evening, and never so much fatigued by the exercise. She complained of it as they returned to Berkeley Street. So not even dancing her passion could make her uh, cheerful again. And she even felt tired, something she never did when she was with Willoughby. Aye, aye, said Mrs. Jennings. We know the reason of all that very well. If a certain person who shall be nameless had been there, you would not have been a bit tired. And to say the truth, it was not very pretty of him not to give you the meeting when he was invited. Invited, cried Marianne. So my daughter Middleton told me, for it seems Sir John met him somewhere in the street this morning. Marian said no more, but looked exceedingly hurt. Impatient in this situation to be doing something that might lead to her sister's relief, Elmer resolved to write the next morning to her mother and hoped by awakening her fears for the health of Marian to procure those inquiries which had been so long delayed. And she was still more eagerly bent on this measure by perceiving after breakfast on the morrow that Marianne was again writing to Willoughby, for she could not suppose it to be to any other person.
About the middle of the day, Mrs. Jennings went out by herself on business, and Eleanor began her letter directly, while Marianne, too restless for employment, too anxious for conversation, walked from one window to the other or sat down by the fire in melancholy meditation. Eleanor was very earnest in her application to her mother, relating all that had passed, her suspicions of Willoughby's inconstancy, urging her by every plea of duty and affection to demand from Marianne an account of her real situation with respect to him. Her letter was scarcely finished when a rap foretold a visitor and Colonel Brandon was announced. Marianne, who had seen him from the window and who hated company of any kind, left the room before he entered it. So we see very little of uh, Marianne at this point in the narrative. Most of the chapters are now through Eleanor's point of view. And so you see how Jane Austen crafts the, the narrative because um, Marianne is quiet there. Um, she doesn't have the energy or to do anything. She finds pleasure in nothing. She doesn't eat. She doesn't listen to music. She cannot read. Um, and she's pretty much on her own. So if someone comes, she leaves the room because she has no pleasure in conversation. So you see how Marianne is even quiet in the narrative itself because we don't read much through her own perspective. So her voice is even quiet as part of the narrative. How interesting is that, right? So Colin O'Brandon was announced. He looked more than usually grave, and though expressing satisfaction at finding Miss Dashwood alone, as if he had somewhat in particular, as if he had somewhat in particular to tell her, sat for some time without saying a word. Eleanor persuaded that he had some communication to make in which her sister was concerned, impatiently expected its opening. It was not the first time of her feeling the same kind of conviction. For more than once before, beginning with the observation of your sister looks unwell today or your sister seems out of spirits, he had appeared on the point either of disclosing or of inquiring something particular about her. A voice of some agitation when he was to congratulate her on the acquisition of a brother. Elnor was not prepared for such a question, and having no answer ready, was obliged to adopt the simple and common expedience of asking what he meant. He tried to smile as he replied, Your sister's engagement to Mr. Willoughby is very generally known. It cannot be generally known, returned Eleanor, for her own family do not know it. He looked surprised and said, I beg your pardon, I'm afraid my inquiry has been impertinent but I had not supposed any secrecy intended as they openly correspond and their marriage is universally talked of. How can that be? By whom can you have heard it mentioned? By many, by some of whom you know nothing, by others with whom you were most intimate, Mrs. Jennings, Mrs. Palmer and the Middletons. But still I might not have believed it for where the mind is perhaps rather unwilling to be convinced it will always find something to support its doubts. If I had not, when the servant let me in today, accidentally seen a letter in his hand directed to Mr. Willoughby in your sister's writing. I came to inquire, but I was convinced before I could ask the question, is everything finally settled? Is it impossible to... But I have no right, and I could have no chance of succeeding. 
Excuse me, Miss Dashwood. I believe I have been wrong in saying so much, but I hardly know what to do, and on your prudence I have the strongest dependence. Tell me that it is all absolutely resolved on that any attempt that in short concealment, if concealment be possible, is all that remains. So Colonel Brennan still has hopes. Well, he has affection for Marianne, but he does not dare say anything or do anything because he knows that she does not feel the same about him. And now he's felt another blow, the confirmation in his mind of Marianne's and Willoughby's engagement, especially because people are talking about it, but that's not proof, of not, proof enough. But when he sees, when he enters the house, he sees the footman leaving um, with a letter addressed to Mr. Willoughby in Marianne's handwriting. Remember, only engaged couples were allowed to, to correspond. He has his proof, so they are engaged. Um, but Eleanor is surprised. These words, which convey to Eleanor a direct avowal of his love for her sister, affected her very much. She was not immediately able to say anything, and even when her spirits were recovered, she debated for a short time on the answer it would be most proper to give. The real state of things between Willoughby and her sister was so little known to herself that in endeavouring to explain it, she might be as liable to say too much as too little. Yet, as she was convinced that Marianne's affection for Willoughby could leave no hope of Colonel Brandon's success, whatever the event of that affection might be, and at the same time wished to shield her conduct from censure, she thought it most prudent and kind, after some consolation, to say more than she really knew or believed. Eleanor's point of view, look at the words. Proper, censure, prudent, consideration. And it's a, um, a kind of worry, concern that um, Colonel Brandon also shares. She acknowledged, therefore, that though she had never been informed by themselves of the terms on which they stood with each other, of their mutual affection she had no doubt, and of their correspondence she was not astonished to hear. He listened to her with silent attention, and on her ceasing to speak, rose directly from his seat, and after saying in a voice of emotion, To your sister I wish all imaginable happiness, to Willoughby that he may endeavour to deserve her, took leave and went away. What a sweet thing to say, right? He really cares, Colonel Brandon really cares about Marianne. He only cares about her happiness. So she, he wishes her all the happiness, and to Willoughby that he endeavoured to deserve Marianne. Elnor derived no comfortable feelings from this conversation to lessen the uneasiness of her mind on other points. She was left, on the contrary, with a melancholy impression of Colonel Brandon's unhappiness, and was prevented even from wishing it removed by her anxiety for the very event that must confirm it. And that is the end of chapter 5, volume 2, or chapter 27. So now Eleanor is certain of Colonel Brandon's feelings for Marianne, and she hates to see him hurt or to say anything that will hurt him. But as she is sure that even if there is no engagement between Marianne and Willoughby, that Marianne would never feel the same way for Colonel Brandon, maybe it's best to say something like what she said, like, she doesn't know about the engagement, but she's sure of their mutual affection. To hurt him now, but at least to 
cut all hopes which could cause a longer suffering, a heavier suffering in the future. Eleanor is watchful, um, but still no Willoughby. Even to the party where he was invited and most likely knew that Marianne would be, since it was at the Middletons, uh, Willoughby was invited, but he, do, he did not show up. So what could be the meaning of that? What do you think about Willoughby's behavior? What is the problem? What is he hiding? Why can't he face, or why doesn't he want to face the Dashwoods, and especially Marianne? All right, let's see where this story goes. Let's start chapter six of volume two or chapter 28. Nothing occurred during the next three or four days to make Elnor regret what she had done in applying to her mother, for Willoughby neither came nor wrote. They were engaged about the end of that time to attend Lady Middleton to a party from which Mrs. Jennings was kept away by the indisposition of her youngest daughter. And for this party, Marianne, wholly dispirited, careless of her appearance, and seeming equally indifferent whether she went or stayed, prepared without one look of hope or one expression of pleasure. She sat by the drawing room fire after tea to the moment of Lady Middleton's arrival without once stirring from her seat or altering her attitude, lost in her own thoughts and insensible of her sister's presence. And when at last they were told that Lady Middleton waited for them at the door, she started as if she had forgotten that anyone was expected. It's not Marianne. Bright has become a ghost of herself, a shadow of herself. She finds uh, contentment in nothing. She does nothing. She speaks nothing. She eats nothing. And she has even become careless of her appearance. She doesn't care if she goes, if she leaves, if she stays, uh, who she talks to. She doesn't care about anything anymore. They arrived in due time at the place of destination, and as soon as the string of carriages before them would allow, alighted, ascended the stairs, heard their names announced from one landing place to another in an audible voice, and entered a room splendidly lit up, quite full of company, and insufferably hot. When they had paid their tribute of politeness by curtsying to the lady of the house, they were permitted to mingle in the crowd and take their share of the heat and inconvenience to which their arrival must necessarily add. After some time spent in saying little and doing less, Lady Middleton sat down to Casino, and as Marianne was not in spirits for moving about, she and Eleanor, luckily succeeding to chairs, placed themselves at no great distance from the table. They had not remained in this manner long before Eleanor perceived Willoughby, standing within a few yards of them in earnest conversation with a very fashionable-looking young woman. She soon caught his eye and he immediately bowed, but without attempting to speak to her or to approach Marianne, though he could not but see her, and then continued his discourse with the same lady. Eleanor turned involuntarily to Marianne to see whether it could be unobserved by her. At that moment, she first perceived him, and her whole countenance glowing with sudden delight, she would have moved towards him instantly had not her sister caught hold of her. 
Good heavens, she exclaimed. He is there. He's there. Oh, why does he not look at me? Why cannot I speak to him? Pray, pray, be composed, cried Eleanor, and do not betray what you feel to everybody present. Perhaps he has not observed you yet. So Willoughby is there, and he's talking to this fashionable young woman, and he only bows to Eleanor, and he does not even go to them to talk to them. And when Marian sees him, he's, she's so delighted. There's a bloom in her face again, and she wants to throw herself at him right away. But Eleanor grabs her arm and says, compose yourself. You should not show your feelings to everyone in this room. Behave. This, however, was more than she could believe herself. And to be composed at such a moment was not only beyond the reach of Marianne, it was beyond her wish. She sat in an agony of impatience which affected every feature. At last he turned round again and regarded them both. She started up and pronouncing his name in a tone of affection held out her hand to him. Um, Misha says here, about Willoughby, he's clearly been ignoring her this whole time. Perhaps he is too engaged to someone else. Something is definitely wrong. Remember how open they were, especially how he was about Marianne, how he felt about her, um, how Elder would find their behavior completely inappropriate because they would demonstrate their feelings to each other in public. And all of a sudden he disappears and he makes no effort to contact her. That is something very, very weird here. Let's see how he will behave to them now that he sees them. He approached and addressing himself rather to Eleanor than to Marianne, as if wishing to avoid her eye and determined not to observe her attitude, inquired in a hurried manner after Mrs. Dashwood and asked how long they had been in town. Eleanor was robbed of all presence of mind by such an address and was unable to say a word. But the feelings of her sister were instantly expressed. Her face was crimsoned over, and she exclaimed in a voice of the greatest emotion, Good God, Willoughby, what is the meaning of this? Have you not received my letters? Will you not shake hands with me? So Willoughby is quite formal and cold, and he asks, he turns himself rather to Eleanor to, rather than Marianne, and just hurriedly asks about after Mrs. Dashwood. And Marianne cannot take this. Good God, Willoughby, what is the matter of this? He could not then avoid it, shaking hands with her, but her touch seemed painful to him, and he held her hand only for a moment. During all this time, he was evidently struggling for composure. Elnor watched his countenance and saw his expression becoming more tranquil. After a moment's pause, he spoke with calmness. I did myself the honor of calling in Berkeley Street last Tuesday and very much regretted that I was not fortunate enough to find yourselves and Mrs. Jennings at home. My card was not lost, I hope. But have you not received my notes? cried Marianne with the wildest anxiety. Here is some mistake, I'm sure, some dreadful mistake. What can be the meaning of it? Tell me, Willoughby, for heaven's sake, tell me, what is the matter? He made no reply. His complexion changed and all his embarrassment he returned. 
But as if, on catching the eye of the young lady with whom he had been previously talking, he felt the necessity of instant exertion, he recovered himself again, and after saying, Yes, I had the pleasure of receiving the information of your arrival in town, which you were so good as to send me, turned hastily away with a slight bow and joined his friend. Marianne, now looking dreadfully white and unable to stand, sunk into her chair and Eleanor, expecting every moment to see her faint, tried to screen her from the observation of others, while reviving her with lavender water. "'Go to him, Eleanor,' she cried as soon as she could speak, "'and force him to come to me. Tell him I must see him again, must speak to him instantly. I cannot rest. I shall not have a moment's peace till this is explained. Some dreadful misapprehension or other. Oh, go to him this moment.' How can that be done? No, my dearest Marianne, you must wait. This is not a place for explanations. Wait only till tomorrow. Marianne is impatient. She wants to get to the bottom of this right away. She doesn't understand. But Eleanor wants to still keep appearances. So she tries to shield Marianne because she's too out of herself. So Eleanor tries to shield her from the observation of the others. And she's composed and she tells Marianne she has to wait. She must wait. This is not the place for such public uh, exhibitions of feelings. With difficulty, however, could she prevent her from following him herself and to persuade her to check her agitation, to wait at least with the appearance of composure, till she might speak to him with more privacy and more effect, was impossible. For Marianne continued incessantly to give way in a low voice to the misery of her feelings by exclamations of wretchedness. In a short time, Eleanor saw Willoughby quit the room by the door towards the staircase, and telling Marianne that he was gone, urged the impossibility of speaking to him again that evening as a fresh argument for her to be calm. She instantly begged her sister would entreat Lady Middleton to take them home, as she was too miserable to stay a minute longer. Lady Middleton, though in the middle of a rubber, so a, another a round game, on being informed that Marianne was unwell, was too polite to object for a moment to her wish of going away. And making over her cards to a friend, they departed as soon as the carriage could be found. Scarcely a word was spoken during their return to Berkeley Street. Marianne was in a silent agony, too much oppressed even for tears. But as Mrs. Jennings was luckily not come home, they could go directly to their own room, where Hartshorn restored her a little to herself. And I'm smelling salts. She was soon undressed and in bed, and as she seemed desirous of being alone, her sister then left her, and while she waited the return of Mrs. Jennings, had leisure enough for thinking over the past. So now Eleanor is alone. Now she can think. She will rationalize the situation as she does. That some kind of engagement had subsisted between Willoughby and Marianne, she could not doubt. And that Willoughby was weary of it seemed equally clear. For however Marianne might still feed her own wishes, she could not attribute such behavior to mistake or misapprehension of any kind. Nothing but a thorough change of sentiment could account for it. Her indignation would have been still stronger 
than it was had she not witnessed that embarrassment which seemed to speak a consciousness of his own misconduct and prevented her from believing him so unprincipled as to have been sporting with the affections of her sister from the first without any design that would bear investigation. Absence might have weakened his regard and convenience might have determined him to overcome it. But that such a regard had formerly existed, she could not bring herself to doubt. As for Marianne, on the pangs which so unhappy a meeting must already have given her, and on those still more severe which might await her in its probable consequence, she could not reflect without the deepest concern. Her own situation gained in the comparison. For while she could esteem Edward as much as ever, however they might be divided in future, her mind might be always supported. But every circumstance that could embitter such an evil seemed uniting such an evil seemed uniting to heighten the misery of Marianne in a final separation from Willoughby, in an immediate and irreconcilable rupture with him. And that's the end of chapter six, volume two, or chapter 28. So how terrible for Marianne to see Willoughby there, the person that she loves the most, that she was so anxious to meet, to see him there and to have him so cold with her and to see him talking to another lady, more fashionable lady. Uh, and Eleanor rationalizes that there was, of course, real affection between Willoughby and Mary and they could not have been fake, but perhaps convenience and uh, absence made Willoughby change his mind. Convenience because Marianne Dashwood is not a girl with a fortune of her own, so I'm not very good um, eligible partner, a marriage partner. Um, so what could have happened, she asks herself. And then she compares again her situation with Marianne. But the difference is now that although Eleanor knows that she will never be able to be with Edward, she can still esteem him because she knows that Edward was sincere in his affections for her, but that he, because of his honor, he would not break a prior engagement. But with Willie, it would be different because if this is really the case, then there's nothing that can absolve him and it would mean a, an immediate and irreconcilable rupture with Willoughby. And now let's read and talk about the final chapter that um, we're reading today, chapter 29 or chapter seven from uh, volume two. And it is a very sensitive and passionate and interesting chapter. Let's read it. Before the housemaid had lit their fire the next day, or the sun gained any power over a cold, gloomy morning in January, Marianne, only half-dressed, was kneeling against one of the window seats for the sake of all the, light, the little light she could command from it, and writing as fast as a continual flow of tears would permit her. In this situation, Eleanor, roused from sleep by her agitation and sobs, first perceived her, and after observing her for a few moments with silent anxiety, said in a tone of the most considerate gentleness, Marianne, may I speak? 
No, Eleanor, she replied. Ask nothing. You will soon know all. It is a gloomy morning, gloomy, cold morning that mirrors and reflects Marianne's mood and her inner thoughts, right? This is what I call emotional landscape. So how the author describes um, the environment, describes the atmosphere, describes the setting, filtered through the character's emotional connection with it. The sort of desperate calmness with which this was said lasted no longer than while she spoke and was immediately followed by a return of the same excessive affliction. It was some minutes before she could go on with her letter and the frequent bursts of grief which still obliged her at intervals to withhold her pen were proofs enough of her feeling how more than probable it was that she was writing for the last time to Willoughby. Eleanor paid her every quiet and unobtrusive attention in her power, and she would have tried to soothe and tranquilize her still more had not Marianne entreated her with all the eagerness of the most nervous irritability not to speak to her for the world. In such circumstances, it was better for both that they should not be long together, and the restless states of Marianne's mind not only prevented her from remaining in the room a moment after she was dressed, but requiring at once solitude and continual change of place made her wander about the house till breakfast time, avoiding the sight of everybody. At breakfast, she neither ate nor attempted to eat anything. And Eleanor's attention was then all employed, not in urging her, not impeding her, nor in appearing to regard her, but in endeavoring to engage Mrs. Jennings' notice entirely to herself. How sweet Eleanor is, right? And how she cares about her sister. So she knows that her sister needs some time alone and she doesn't want to be bothered. But what she does instead is to try to get all of Mrs. Jennings' attention to herself, Eleanor, so then Mrs. Jennings would leave Marion alone during this moment of grief. As this was a favorite meal with Mrs. Jennings' breakfast, it lasted a considerable time. And they were just setting themselves after it round the common working table when a letter was delivered to Marianne, which she eagerly caught from the servant, and turning off a death-like paleness, instantly ran out of the room. Eleanor, who saw as plainly by this as if she had seen the direction that it must come from Willoughby, felt immediately such a sickness at heart as made her hardly able to hold up her head and sat in such a general tremor as made her fear it impossible to escape Mrs. Jennings' notice. That good lady, however, saw only that Marianne had received a letter from Willoughby, which appeared to her a very good joke, and which she treated accordingly, by hoping with a laugh that she would find it to her liking. <laughs> so far from the truth, Mrs. Jennings. Of Alice's distress, she was too busily employed in measuring lengths of worsted for her rug to see anything at all, and calmly continuing her talk, as soon as Marianne disappeared, she said, Upon my word, I never saw a young woman so desperately in love in my life. My girls were nothing to her, and yet they used to be foolish enough. But as for Miss Marianne, she's quite an altered creature. I hope from the bottom of my heart he won't keep her waiting much longer, for it is quite grievous to see her look so ill and forlorn. Pray, when are they to be married? Eleanor, though never last disposed to speak then at that moment, obliged herself to answer such an attack as this, 
and therefore trying to smile, replied, And have you really, ma'am, talked yourself into a persuasion of my sister's being engaged to Mr. Willoughby? I thought it had been only a joke, but so serious a question seems to imply more, and I must beg, therefore, that you will not deceive yourself any longer. I do assure you that nothing would surprise me more than to hear of their being going to be married. For shame, for shame, Miss Dashwood, how can you talk so? Don't we all know that it must be a match, that they were over head and ears in love with each other from the first moment they met? Did not I see them together in Devonshire every day and all day long? And did not I know that your sister came to town with me on purpose to buy wedding clothes? So Mrs. Jennings' mind is going, taking a life of her own and going further than the truth. So already imagining that um, Eleanor had, I mean, Marianne had come to London to choose her wedding uh, clothes. Come, come, this won't do. Because you are so sly about it yourself, you think nobody else has any senses. But it is no such thing, I can tell you, for it has been known all over town this ever so long. I tell everybody of it, and so does Charlotte. How impertinent. Indeed, ma'am, said Eleanor very seriously, you are mistaken. Indeed, you are doing a very unkind thing in spreading the report, and you will find that you have, though you will not believe me now. Mrs. Jennings laughed again, but Eleanor had not spirits to say more, and eager at all events to know what Willoughby had written, hurried away to their room, where on opening the door, she saw Marianne stretched on the bed, almost choked by grief, one letter in her hand, and two or three others laying by her. Eleanor drew near, but without saying a word, and sitting herself on the bed, took her hand, kissed her affectionately several times, and then gave way to a burst of tears, which at first was scarcely less violent than Marianne's. The latter, though unable to speak, seemed to feel all the tenderness of this behavior, and after some time thus spent in joint affliction, she put all the letters into Eleanor's hands and then covering her face with her handkerchief, almost screamed with agony. So that's such a beautiful sisterly moment, right? They cry together, they grieve together, they spend this time in joint affliction. And then Marianne decides to open up and just uh, gives Willoughby's letter to Eleanor. Eleanor, who knew that such grief, shocking as it was to witness it, must have its course, watched by her till this excess of suffering had somewhat spent itself, and then, turning eagerly to Willoughby's letter, read as follows. So we are going to read Eleanor's, I mean, Willoughby's letter now. Bond Street, January. My dear madam, so he starts in a very formal way. My dear madam, I have just had the honor of receiving your letter, for which I beg to return my sincere acknowledgments. I am much concerned to find there was anything in my behavior last night that did not meet your approbation. And though I am quite at a loss to discover in what point I could be so unfortunate as to offend you, I entreat your forgiveness of what I can assure you to have been perfectly unintentional. I shall never reflect on my former acquaintance with your family in Devonshire without the most grateful pleasure and flatter myself it will not be broken by any mistake or misapprehension of my actions. 
My esteem for your whole family is very sincere. But if I have been so unfortunate as to give rise to a belief of more than I felt or meant to express, I shall reproach myself for not having been more guarded in my professions of that esteem. That I should ever have meant more, you will allow to be impossible. When you understand that my affections have been long engaged elsewhere, and it will not be many weeks, I believe, before this engagement is fulfilled. It is with great regret that I obey your commands of returning the letters with which I have been honored from you and the lock of hair which you so obligingly bestowed on me. I am, dear madam, your most obedient, humble servant, John Willoughby. Wow. Cruel, cruel Willoughby. Heartless. It's such exaggerated politeness and formality. He signs his full name. I am, dear madam, your most obedient, humble, humble servant. It hurts even more, right? And he returns the letters that Marianne sent him along with the lock of hair that he had taken from her. So it is indeed over. And Eleanor's is furious. She says with indignation, with what indignation such a letter as this must be such a letter as this must be read by Miss Dashwood may be imagined. Though aware before she began it that it must bring a confession of this of his inconst inconstancy and confirm their separation forever, she was not aware that such language could be suffered to announce it. Nor could she have supposed Willoughby capable of departing so far from the appearance of every honorable and delicate feeling, so far from the common decorum of a gentleman, as to send a letter so impudently cruel, a letter which, instead of bringing with his desire of a release any professions of regret, acknowledged no breach of faith, denied all peculiar affection whatever, a letter of which every line was a, an insult, in which proclaimed its writer to be deep in hardened villainy. Michel says, I knew it. The same thing has happened to both sisters, but this time hurts much more. It is so cruel. And as Eleanor says, that's why she's so furious. Um, he does not apologize for doing something wrong. Um, he does not apologize for feeling what he was not supposed to feel, but he completely rejects, denies any sort of feeling for Marianne and denies that anything happened that could have reason the hopes of something more and that he had been engaged, long engaged, and that in a few weeks he would be married. What a blow, what an insult, right? To pretend like nothing between him and Marianne ever happened. Although Eleanor was a witness, a lot of people were witnesses. Um, very, very cruel. She paused over it for some time with indignant astonishment, then read it again and again. But every perusal only served to increase her abhorrence of the man, and so bitter were her feelings against him that she dared not trust herself to speak, lest she might wound Marianne still deeper by treating their disengagement not as a loss to her of any possible good, but as an escape from the worst and most irremediable of all evils, a connection for life with an unprincipled man as a deliverance the most real, a blessing the most important. 
In her earnest meditations on the contents of the letter, on the depravity of that mind which could dictate it, and probably on the very different mind of a very different person who had no other connection whatever with the affair than what her heart gave him with everything that passed, Eleanor forgot the immediate distress of her sister, forgot that she had three letters on her lap yet unread, and so entirely forgot how long she had been in the room that when on hearing a carriage drive up to the door, she went to the window to see who could be coming so unreasonably early, she was all astonishment to perceive Mrs. Jenny's chariot, which she knew had not been ordered till one. Determined not to quit Marianne, though hopeless of contributing at present to her ease, she hurried away to excuse herself from attending Mrs. Jennings on account of her sister being indisposed. So Marianne, so Eleanor still um, worries about keeping up the appearances. So she excuses, she leaves the room to excuse herself and Marianne, and then she returns. With uh, Mrs. Jennings, with a thoroughly good-humored concern for its cause, admitted the excuse most readily, and Eleanor, after seeing her safe off, returned to Marianne, whom she found attempting to rise from the bed, and whom she reached just in time to prevent her from falling on the floor, faint and giddy from a long want of proper rest and food. For it was many days since she had any appetite, and many nights since she had really slept. And now, when her mind was no longer supported by the fever of suspense, the consequence of all this was felt in an aching head, a weakened stomach, and a, generous, and a general nervous faintness. A glass of wine, which Eleanor procured for her directly, made her more comfortable, and she was at last able to express some sense of her kindness by saying, Poor Eleanor, how unhappy I make you. So now Marianne feels all the consequences of the past days in which she was so anxious with the suspense that she didn't eat, she didn't sleep, she didn't take care of herself. And now when the suspense is finally over, she feels all the consequences and she is wretched. And she's also sorry that she feels uh, that she makes Eleanor suffer for her. I only wish replied her sister, there were anything I could do which might be of comfort to you. This, as everything else would have been, was too much for Marianne, who could only exclaim in the anguish of her heart, Oh, Eleanor, I am miserable indeed, before her voice was entirely lost in sobs. Eleanor could no longer witness this torrent of unresisted grief in silence. Exert yourself, Marianne, she cried. If you would not kill yourself and all who love you, think of your mother, think of her misery while you suffer. For her sake, you must exert yourself. So Eleanor says, use the power of your mind over the passions of your body. So exert yourself. Do it for my sake, for your mom's sake, if it's not for your sake, for the people who love you. I cannot, I cannot cried Marianne. Leave me, leave me if I distress you. Leave me, hate me, forget me, but do not torture me so. Oh, how easy for those who have no sorrow of their own to talk of exertion. Happy, happy Eleanor, you cannot have an idea of what I suffer. And now Marianne compares her situation with Eleanor 
And she thinks that Eleanor does not understand what she's feeling because Eleanor is happy. She has Edward. But Marianne doesn't know the whole story. She doesn't know that Edward is actually engaged to someone else because Eleanor did not tell that to anyone. Do you call me happy, Marianne? If you knew. And can you believe me to be so while I see you so wretched? Forgive me, forgive me, throwing her arms around her sister's neck. I know you feel for me. I know what a heart you have. But yet you are, you must be happy. Edward loves you. What, oh, what can do away such happiness as that? Many, many, many circumstances, said Eleanor solemnly. No, 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 cried Marianne wildly. He loves you and only you. You can have no grief. I can have no pleasure while I see you in this state. And you will never see me otherwise. Mine is a misery which nothing can do away. An exaggerated Marianne thinks that this will never go away, that he will never recover from this blow. You must not talk so, Marianne. Have you no comforts, no friends? Is your loss such as leaves no opening for consolation? Much as you suffer now, think of what you would have suffered if the discovery of his character had been delayed to a later period. If your engagement had been carried on for months and months, as it might have been, before he chose to put an end to it. Every additional day of unhappy confidence on your side would have made the blow more dreadful. Engagement, cried Marianne. There has been no engagement. No engagement. No, he's not so unworthy as you believe him. He has broken no faith with me. But he told you that he loved you. Yes, no, never absolutely. It was every day implied, but never professedly declared. Sometimes I thought it had been, but, but it never was. Yet you wrote to him? Yes. Could that be wrong after all that had passed? But I cannot talk. Elnor said no more, and turning again to the three letters which now raised a much stronger curiosity than before, directly ran over the contents of all. The first, which was what her sister had sent him on their arrival in town, was to this effect. Before I read the letter, so Eleanor is surprised, shocked with Marianne's behavior. She learns that there was no formal engagement, that there was no explicit profession of love. So in a way, Marianne is right. Willoughby did not break his faith, although his behavior showed otherwise, but Plainly spoken, there was no agreement. And yet, um, Eleanor is shocked that Marianne would write to Willoughby. That would not have been accepted, right? Because they did not have a formal agreement. Um, but she doesn't say anything at the moment. She does not reproach her sister because she knows she's in a delicate state now. So in order to understand the situation better, she reads the letters written by Marianne that Willoughby returned. This was the first one. Berkeley Street, January. How surprised you will be, Willoughby, on receiving this. And I think you will feel something more than surprise when you know that I am in town. An opportunity of coming hither, though with Mrs. Jennings, was a temptation we could not resist. I wish you may receive this in time to come here tonight, but I will not depend on it. 
At any rate, I shall expect you tomorrow. For the present, adieu. M.D. Marion Dashwood. So see, very familiar terms, straight to the point. Now, her second note, which had been written on the morning after the dance at the Middletons, was in these words. I cannot express my disappointment in having missed you the day before yesterday, nor my astonishment at not having received any answer to a note which I sent you above a week ago. I have been expecting to hear from you and still more to see you every hour of the day. Pray call again as soon as possible and explain the reason of my having expected this in vain. You had better come earlier another time because we are generally out by one. We were last night at Lady Middleton's where there was a dance. I have been told that you were asked to be of the party. But could it be so? You must be very much altered indeed since we parted, if that could be the case, and you not there. But I will not suppose this possible, and I hope very soon to receive your personal assurance of its being otherwise. <clears throat> MD. The contents of her last note to him were these. You see how, how the, the misery and the passion is rising in her notes. What am I to imagine, Willoughby, by your behavior last night? Again, I demand an explanation of it. I was prepared to meet you with the pleasure which our separation naturally produced, with the familiarity which our intimacy at Barton appeared to me to justify. I was repulsed indeed. I have passed a wretched night in endeavoring to excuse a conduct which can scarcely be called less than insulting. But though I have not yet been able to form any reasonable apology for your behavior, I am perfectly ready to hear your justification of it. You have perhaps been misinformed or purposely deceived in something concerning me which may have lowered me in your opinion. Tell me what it is, explain the grounds on which you acted, and I shall be satisfied in being able to satisfy, to satisfy you. It would grieve me indeed to be obliged to think ill of you. But if I am to do it, if I am to learn that you are not what we have hitherto believed you, that your regard for us all was insincere, that your behavior to me was intended only to deceive, let it be told as soon as possible. My feelings are at present in a state of dreadful indecision. I wish to acquit you, but certainty on either side will be ease to what I now suffer. If your sentiments are no longer what they were, you will return my notes and the lock of my hair, which is in your possession. M.D. That such letters so full of affection and confidence could have been so answered, Eleanor, for, for Willoughby's sake, would have been unwilling to believe. But her condemnation of him did not blind her to the impropriety of their having been written at all. And she was silently grieving over the imprudence which had hazarded such unsolicited proofs of tenderness, not warranted by anything preceding, and most severely condemned by the event, when Marianne, perceiving that she had finished the letters, observed to her that they contained nothing but what anyone would have written in the same situation. Again, different perceptions on the situation. So for Eleanor, this was so out of line, but Marianne thinks that this is what anyone would have done in a similar situation. I felt myself, she added, to be as solemnly engaged to him as if the strictest legal covenant had bound us to each other. I can believe it, said Eleanor, but unfortunately he did not feel the same. 
He did feel the same, Eleanor. For weeks and weeks he felt it. I know he did. Whatever may have changed him now, and nothing but the blackest art employed against me can have done it, I was once as dear to him as my own soul could wish. This lock of hair, which now he can so readily give up, was begged of me with the most earnest supplication. Had you seen his look, his manner, had you heard his voice at that moment? Have you forgot the last evening of our being together at Barton? The morning that we parted too, when he told me that it might be many weeks before we meet again, his distress, can I ever forget his distress? For a moment or two she could say no more, but when this emotion had passed away, she added in a firmer tone, Eleanor, I have been cruelly used, but not by Willoughby. Dearest Marianne, who but himself? By whom can he have been instigated? By all the world, rather by his own heart. I could rather believe every creature of my acquaintance leagued together to ruin me in his opinion than believe his nature capable of such cruelty. This woman of whom he writes, whoever she be, or anyone in short but your own dear self, Mamma and Edward, may have been so barbarous to belly me. Beyond you three, is there a creature in the world whom I would not rather suspect of evil than Willoughby, whose heart I know so well? So now Marian is in a phase of denial. So no, no, it cannot be. Willoughby would never do that to me. He would never be this cruel. There must be someone who is making him change his mind. Eleanor would not contend and only replied, whoever may have been so detestably your enemy, let them be cheated of their malignant triumph, my dear sister, by seeing how nobly the consciousness of your own innocence and good intentions supports your spirits. It is a reasonable and laudable pride which resists such malevolence. No, no, cried Marian. Misery such as mine has no pride. I care not who knows that I am wretched. The triumph of seeing me so may be open to all the world. Eleanor, Eleanor, they who suffer little may be proud and independent as they like, may resist insult or return mortification. But I cannot. I must feel. I must be wretched. And they are welcome to enjoy the consciousness of it that can. So Marian is not going to hide. She wants to show her suffering to the world. She can't hide it. And she has no pride. Anyone can see how she feels. But for my mother's sake and mine, I would do more than for my own. But to appear happy when I'm so miserable, who can require it? Again, they were both silent. Eleanor was employed in walking thoughtfully from the fire to the window, from the window to the fire, without knowing that she received warmth from one or discerning objects through the other. And Marianne, seated at the foot of the bed with her head leaning against one of its posts, again took up Willoughby's letter and after shuddering over every sentence exclaimed, It is too much. Oh, Willoughby, Willoughby, could this be yours? Cruel, cruel, nothing can acquit you. Eleanor, nothing can. Whatever he might have heard against me, ought he not to have suspended his belief? Ought he not to have told me of it, to have given me the power of clearing myself? The lock of hair, repeating it from the letter, which you so obligingly bestowed on me. That is unpardonable, Willoughby. Where was your heart when you wrote these words? 
Oh, barbarously insolent. Eleanor, can he be justified? No, Marianne, in no possible way. And yet this woman, who knows what her art may have been, how long it may have been premeditated, and how deeply contrived by her, who is she? Who can she be? Whom did I ever hear him talk of as young and attractive among his female acquaintance? Oh, no one, no one. He talked to me only of myself. Another pause ensued. Marianne was greatly agitated, and it ended thus. Eleanor, I must go home. I must go and comfort Mama. Cannot we be gone tomorrow? Tomorrow, Marianne? Yes, why should I stay here? I came only for Willoughby's sake, and now who cares for me? Who regards me? It would be impossible to go tomorrow. We owe Mrs. Jennings much more than civility and civility of that commonest kind must prevent such a hasty removal as that. Well then, another day or two perhaps, but I cannot stay here long. I cannot stay to endure the questions and remarks of all these people. The Middletons and Palmers, who am I to bear their, how am I to bear their pity? The pity of such a woman as Lady Middleton. What would he say to that? Eleanor advised her to lie down again, and for a moment she did so, but no attitude could give her ease, and in restless pain of mind and body she moved from one posture to another, till, growing more and more hysterical, her sister could with difficulty keep her on the bed at all, and for some time was fearful of being constrained to call for assistance. Some lavender drops, however, which she was at length persuaded to take, were of use, and from that time till Mrs. Jennings returned, she continued on the bed, quiet and motionless. And this is the end of chapter 7, volume 2, or chapter 29, the last chapter we had to discuss today. And what a terrible blow for Marianne, right? Um, and she just wants to go home, she wants to be with her mother, but prudent, uh, Eleanor says, that no, they cannot be too hasty. They cannot, they need to act with civility towards Mrs. Jennings, who invited them there. So they need to wait a little bit. So here we are. I hope you've enjoyed this discussion of chapters 26 to 29. Now we're into volume two and things are getting really hard for both sisters, both heartbroken, both engagements um, not uh, succeeded. And we'll see how the story carry on next time. Uh, Misha says that every week I am more and more shocked and captivated by Austin's writing. Yes, um, the way she crafts the narrative in, in such a way. Um, for instance, in this that we discussed today, how Marianne's voice, because she was so quiet and alone and in her own um, state of mind for a while because of the anxiety she felt for Willoughby, her point of view was also effaced from the narrative. So that's quite an interesting way. I really enjoy that. Um, and I'm glad that you're enjoying uh, her writing. We'll see how the story carries on with the Dashwoods in the upcoming session when we talk of chapters 30, 31, 32, and 33. And uh, I hope to meet you then. Have a great week. I hope you read wonderful things and I hope to see you at the online course, the Jane Austen Club. Bye.
So here we are. I hope you've enjoyed this eighth session of the guided reading of Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility. I will be uploading the sessions as audio-only documents in this podcast in the upcoming weeks. Next time, we'll read and discuss chapters 30 to 33. And remember, if you want to know more about Jane Austen, her world, and literary career, sign up for the online course, The Jane Austen Club, on the website booksandculture.club. Stay tuned and until the next stop in our journey through English literature. Remember, you can find me on Instagram at books.and.culture. For ideas for future episodes or comments, you can send me an email at hello at booksandculture.club. See you next time.